As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. A note for listeners. This episode discusses the issue of deaths in custody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And at the end of the day, you have to keep the main focus is my job is to make corrections a better, well-rounded place for Aboriginal people to be in custody. And the only way that's going to happen is by championing that and reminding people that you have an Aboriginal unit. This must come through our unit. We have to have an Aboriginal lens over this. (laughs) 
Gamilaroi woman Louise Lynch is the manager of Corrective Services New South Wales Aboriginal Strategy and Policy Unit. Louise first came to work in New South Wales prisons as a teacher more than 25 years ago, and she's dedicated her career to supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in prison and, among many important initiatives, improving and embedding culturally appropriate training for staff in corrective services. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Louise tells us about the complexities of the justice system for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and why it looks very different for men and women. But first, Louise tells us about how she got her start in corrections. Yeah, I've been with the department since 97. Um, So my background is I'm a high school teacher. So I taught in high schools for a few years. And then one of the um, boys that I was teaching ended up in custody. And that was the first time I'd ever been to a jail to visit him. And when I went to visit him, I ran into an education officer or the senior education officer and I started talking to him because I didn't realise there was education in jails. <laughs> and he started to tell me, no, we're going to be advertising full-time teachers, qualified teachers to teach in the jail and um, the position come up and I applied and got it. So much Whoa. to the, um, yeah, my parents were devastated because I was teaching in Catholic schools, which was, you know, they viewed as a nice cushy job. Yeah. And then I went to the, um, when I went to the jails. So yeah, I started in 97 as the Aboriginal Literacy and Numeracy Teacher. So I actually started at MRRC or the Metropolitan Remand Section that they referred to today. All jokes aside though, for your family, was there a sense of, as a, an Aboriginal woman, can you not go into a jail? because there's so much association with Aboriginal people and incarceration and here you have a job in the Catholic school system where that's not associated with Aboriginal people. Even though you were obviously not an inmate but an educator and a professional person, was there a sense of that? No, there's no. My mother was very much community-driven and my mother was always heavily involved in advisory group roles, land council roles. So um, from a very early age, you were taught that you had to put back into community. I think their only concern was probably that I was young and they were concerned that it might have a detrimental effect on what I saw in a jail because, remember, they hadn't been into jails either. And sort of all we knew about jails was when you ran into local Joe who just got out of custody and said, oh, it was crap, it was terrible, but I'm back here now. So I think that was um, the concern. But because of where I grew up in, I grew up in Ayrds at Campbelltown, which is a massive housing estate, and it was pretty rough and everyone was doing it pretty hard. Um, Yeah, so I think they were a bit concerned about what I would see, but the devastating thing for me was when I started teaching in jails, how many people I knew, how many people I'd gone to school with, how many people that were a brother or a sister or father of a mother of someone that I'd grown up with. And that was, yeah, I found that at heart because I knew these people from when I'd grown up with them or I'd saw them and then seeing them in this environment, which was um, totally different to what I'd ever imagined, really, um, it shocked me. It shocked me about the limitations of the system. It shocked me the way I'd seen people behave and the way they were behaving in custody. Like, Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, mm. very, very different. What was the difference, um, the difference in the way that they behaved around the, the neighbourhood? The I they... just dislike people in blue. 
yeah. regardless of what they did or what interventions they tried to do. There was just a total lack of respect for people in blue. I was very lucky because I come in in a non-custodial role. So inmates view you very different to, say, a staff member who's in a blue uniform. So I'm not there to turn a gate. I'm not there to lock them in. I'm not there to put them in segregation if they've done something wrong or give them internal charges. I'm actually there as a support person to help them with their education, their literacy, their numeracy. And what else struck me too, being um, Aboriginal myself, what struck me was the difference how Aboriginal people in custody were viewed in the same light, whether they were male or female. But once you work in the system, you realise you're dealing with two totally different mindsets for when you're dealing with people in custody based on the fact if they are an Aboriginal woman or they're an Aboriginal man. Do you think that um, non-Aboriginal men and women have different mindsets? Oh, most definitely. In a similar way? Most definitely. And do you think that non-Aboriginal men and women are treated differently in a custodial situation? Well, the obvious fact is they are treated differently because you need different communication techniques when you're working with a male than working with a female. In the education space, men were very easy to work with. You could read the signs. You could tell if something was about to happen or if something were coming. Men weren't very good at um, masking their behaviour or if something was wrong or something wasn't right. But as, you know, I've been in classrooms with women who are high-fiving each other, really nice, you turn around to write on the board and then a table's lifted and you can't see it. So women, uh, women I find at times very much more impulsive and very emotional driven. So in a custodial environment you feel as though that was absolutely accepted and acknowledged with regard to non-Indigenous inmates Mm -hmm. but with regard to Indigenous inmates... That was not acknowledged. No, so uh, I'll just clarify. What yeah. I meant by that was when I first started, we had if we had Aboriginal programs, but there mm. was no specific ah. program that was targeted for Aboriginal women or Aboriginal oh, men. Right. So if the program worked in a male jail and it was a men's Aboriginal program, we'd just stick a WO in front of it <laughs> and say it's now a women's <laughs> Aboriginal program. When we know when we're looking at programs now, programs have to look totally different the way you interact, the topics you cover, depending on whether you're dealing with a female inmate as opposed to a male inmate. And when looking at Aboriginal people... Aboriginal people, based on men and women, don't have at times the same needs. Like an Aboriginal woman is viewed by community a lot harsher when she comes to custody as opposed to an Aboriginal man. And when an Aboriginal male comes into custody, when they come into remand, they've got someone to look after the house, look after the kids, Mm -hmm. put money into their account, check the bills are still going. They've got someone to say, you are coming in with the children and you are going to visit me. But when an Aboriginal woman or any woman ends up in custody, they've usually lost their children, lost their house. They've got no one looking after them. They've got no one who's going to come in, you know, for Mm -hmm. those visits. So it seems the trauma for Aboriginal women starts a lot earlier when they first join custody as opposed to Aboriginal men. When non-Aboriginal women go into custody, they're statistically likely to have been victims of abuse as well. Is that common with Aboriginal women as well? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, Yeah, over 95% of Aboriginal women come in um, highly traumatised. 
When we've had injuries, Aboriginal women come in 37% have had previous head injuries as opposed to non-Aboriginal women who've had 19. So what I'm saying is when they do come in, they're assessed, but for our staff working with women, they need to understand when, you know, that tells you automatically people have got cognitive impairment. Yeah, yeah. So when you're giving directions, when you're saying you have to be here, when you're saying you have to be here at a certain time, a lot of women when they first come in in the past were getting higher internal charges because they yeah. weren't turning up to muster on time, they weren't going mm. to appointments and they weren't remembering you know, certain things. And that's why it's so important when we're training staff who are working with women in our system, that staff have to be aware of those things. And if you've got women who are coming in, you know, with, you know, large domestic violence relationships, can you imagine if you're a female and you're being given an order as where if someone's, you know, a male, for example, has raised their voice and they're talking to you, As opposed to if you're using a lower voice, you know, it's about the safety of staff as well because we need to teach our staff when you're speaking with women, there's certain ways you have to use your voice, there's certain um, parameters in closeness of space because you can either fight or flight a woman. That can either turn into a positive outcome or it can go the other way. And depending on where that woman's at, if she's only just arrived in the system, she still doesn't know where her children are, she still hasn't cancelled the house, she doesn't know who's going to pay the bills... Mm. You know, for that woman, if you have that interaction at the wrong time, it can just explode. And when it comes to not knowing where the children are, children of Aboriginal women are removed at such a high rate, Mm -hmm. at a higher rate now than at any time during the stolen generations. Is that correct? And the other thing is that a lot of the implications that has for community is a lot of those women who go into custody, the expectation is because of Aboriginal people do not trust the justice system, whether that's corrections, whether it's mm. facts. Or social Whether workers. it's police, social workers. Yeah. What you find is then the pressure is put on our elder people like mum and dad, nan and pop, to now take the children so they're not put into become a state ward or they're not farmed out to other carers. So there's this big amounting pressure not only has a woman come into custody there's now this pressure to quickly find a placement quickly make sure family members are looking after that and um you know and you see it when you go into communities you've got elder aboriginal people looking after two and three year olds yes Mm. you know like my i know i've got two boys they're 22 and 23 and i know by the time they got to about four my mother said i can only mind one at a time sorry (laughs) yes yeah yeah. Yeah, my mother doesn't want a bar of them but (laughs) They're 12 and they're very well behaved and yeah. she's like, nah, four o'clock's wine time. It is, it is Get them out of here. It's a lot. It is a mm. lot to um, ask a family but I understand why because of the yeah. fear and the, the trauma of having the children put somewhere, you know, that well, isn't not knowing right. where they yeah, are. I mean, knowing. we're t- talking about not literally not knowing and when you've got the generational trauma of mm. the stolen generations, I mean, it's... And I think something that's been sort of very positive in the last 12 months is as an Aboriginal person working in a government organisation, it's made very clear very quickly that our people do not trust the justice system. Mm. And that's made very clear. So part of when we were talking to women, when we were speaking to them, the biggest issue was the main concern was children, whether they are Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, that was the issue. Who are the carers? Where are they? Do I get school reports? Do I know where they are? 
So we actually worked with FACS to have what we call co-location workers come in. So they're FACS workers that come in and they're basically like an advocate for the women. So they're not giving them the children's orders, but they can actually approach that worker who will find out where the children are, who will explain what their requirements are about getting back their children and gaining access to their children. So that's been really good because what it's done is it's built bridges with women actually having faith in the fact system yeah. and and what we find is a lot of women in the past will lose custody of their children because they don't turn up at facts. They won't turn up for meetings okay. because they don't trust the system. So this has been a really good way of actually showing women that, you know, there are people out there who will support you, who will work with you, and they do happen to work for facts and it is working. So that's been really good. That's been able to alleviate a lot of that automatic trauma when they come in that they've now got a caseworker they can see who can ring these different departments on their behalf and advocate for them and a lot of women and men don't understand their children's orders no yeah. you know like no one's actually clearly explained that you know while you're in custody you can do abc which counts towards getting custody back of your children yeah. um, and even things like you know in the past, there might be reports that say mum hasn't turned up to court. Well, actually, mum couldn't turn up to court because she was in custody. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't state that, just states on the form mum hasn't turned up to court. So when they're looking at that, people think, well, she hasn't turned up to court. Obviously, she doesn't care. But the, in the past, there hasn't been the listed reason for why that person didn't turn up to court. So that's been really important, building that bridge so that people actually start to have faith in the justice system, but most importantly will use the justice system to their advantage when they're out of custody as well. Yeah, it's like the I, I actually didn't know a lot about that, but, yeah, the system really is set up to almost fail Aboriginal people if they're not able to explain really how the system works. So I'm getting that sense of, well, how can it be fixed if the system isn't going to help people? And. I think the system is there, the system has a process, but the problem is if people don't have faith in the system, they don't yeah. use it. They don't use those services. They don't access those services. Why do you think so many women don't report domestic violence? Because mm. they know once they report it, then their children come under the scrutiny yeah. as well. Yeah. It's not just them that's going to go to court to discuss the domestic violence. They're now going to be questioned about, well, what safety have you provided for your child? Yeah, people are going to go yeah. to the school. They're going to talk to the teachers. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to – it's like once you're in the system too, it's out of your control. It's like a – it takes on a life of its own. Mm. You can't stop the process. So people are going to go to the school and they're going to start talking to the teachers. Now, if the teachers go, well, they have a lot of days off, mm. for example, yep. all of those things that can happen in family violence situations for a lot of reasons. Maybe mum has to grab those kids and take off for a couple of days at a time and go and stay with a relative somewhere mm. else or whatever for the safety of the kids and they don't get to go to school on those mm. days. Yeah. All of those things can really start to mount up. Yeah. And the other her. thing is we we have domestic violent, violent programs for men and women in custody, but there's still this language in the wider community that women are viewed so harshly. So if you're a woman and you come into custody and you're in, you know, you've been in a domestic violence relationship, 
But when you're actually in custody, you decide because of your location or because of the lack of housing or because your partner currently has the children that you're going to go back into that relationship. Mm. That woman is then deemed as a failure. Mm. Well, that program hasn't worked. You haven't been success. But really, we should be acknowledging the skill set that woman has to keep her kids safe, mm. to have a backup plan where she's going, to know what the threats are, to know when that she needs to go out. You know, so around domestic violence, there seems to be we have a lot of hand clapping for women that leave those relationships but we don't acknowledge the skills that some women have to have because they have to go back into that relationship. Well and at the same time we wonder how it is that we have this epidemic of uh, murder of of women you know it's still one point something a week a week and we you know we have people scratching their heads going how is this happening why is this happening? Yeah and it's not just a a one fixed problem like Mm -hmm. there are just so many underlying layers like you know there's the isolation first and then there's the control around you know we have some women who come in and they can't even tell you what the money they're getting no because Mm. they've never had a bank account the money goes directly into their partners or women who are given you know $30 a week that she's shopping for the week and you've got three kids and that's what you're going to live on and what's even more staggering is that when you look at women who come into custody we've got you know, four out of five women are diagnosed with mental health. Yeah. You know, and for a lot of the women, they're only diagnosed when they come into custody. Yeah. Mm. So who knows how long they've been living with that. We've got, you know, two out of three women have extensive trauma. Three out of four women have dependent children when they come into custody. So that's what I was saying at the beginning when I said we have to look at Aboriginal men and women, their journey when they come into custody, it looks very, very different. Because Aboriginal men, when they're on remand, they cope very well. They know half of the people there, yep. cousins there, bros there, they're quite happy, they know a lot of the staff, they know when biops forms is, they're all good. And the Aboriginal men, their trauma tends to spike once they're sentenced and then they're moved to another location. Oh. As we're for Aboriginal women, the trauma starts the minute they hit the system. You know, we've, we've got women who come from domestic violence relationships and in the past the first thing we do to a woman is strip search her. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. So in the last 18 months we've introduced body scanners which are to alleviate Great. that wow. happening. Um, and there was a bit of a hold-up because it, um, so one out of 25 women when they come to custody are pregnant and a lot of women don't know they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Right, so that was one of the cons- one of the hiccups. Looking at is how's this going to how's this scanner going to affect someone who might mm. be pregnant? So that was a bit of a hold up working out, um, you know, what the requirements were and what what happens with that. But you know, that's just one example. As a department, they've worked out very quickly that you're just re-traumatizing women over and over and over again. I think we should make the point too searches. that um, in defence of men in general, Australian men, is that. Clearly, we have an epidemic of male violence in Australia, but also when we're talking about family violence, um, our men were children mm-hmm. and children are victims of family violence, the epidemic. Well, I was thinking today have. on the way here, I was thinking, so I was 20 years as a teacher before I came into my current role. Yeah. So I was 20 years taught in many different jails and I was thinking... Yeah, I had some success stories with people who got employment, who got jobs, who learnt how to read and write. But one of the biggest successes I had was actually modelling how you speak to someone. Yeah. What's acceptable behaviour, what isn't. Actually reminding someone that you're actually in my space now. Why are you yelling at me? 
Um, and I learned very quickly as a teacher, it makes it very nice when you're saying yes, but you will see the real mm -hmm. side when you say no. So for them and, you know, turning up on time, like me saying to other teachers who had um, queries in their class and they'd be 20 minutes late and I'd say, where's your class? Oh, they're very busy. They've got things to do. And I said, no, these people need employment. These people need jobs. These people need timetables. Do not slacken off and think because they're Aboriginal, it's okay to turn up But aren't up they late. on Koori time? <laughs> Why haven't they gone walkabout for 20 minutes? <laughs> walkabout. Um, Tell us about that, though. I mean, there is still this perception that I hear it all the yeah, time. When I people hear go, people saying it. Yeah, all the time people, you know, will absolutely, <laughs> you know, kind of um, minimise Aboriginal people in these ways. Mm. Um, oh, look, he'll be late. He's on, he's on Aboriginal time. He's on Koori time. He's probably gone walkabout. Um and really and truly what they're saying is this is why Aboriginal people can't be employed, can't be trustworthy. Yeah, and it's a load of crap. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what job you work in. Like as a teenager I worked in butcher shops. If I was a minute late, I was yelled at, screamed at. It's told. not a cultural reality. No, it's not. And I think in, you know, in the past, especially when there was sorry business, people would go walk about because there were certain customs that had to take place and had to do that people, non-Aboriginal people, probably didn't understand. But I think, um, yeah, in today's society, I just think that's irrelevant that, you know, people go, well, my role now is the principal of the Aboriginal Strategy and Policy Unit and my staff are probably, I reckon, one of the hardest working staff in the department. And I guarantee you they're not late. I guarantee you they don't go for walkabout. And I guarantee you they meet deadlines, timelines, community commitments. And they and can they read their watches. Yes. Like they actually, yeah. <laughs> they the same well, they've time now as... got flashy watches that bip at them and tell them where they should be. No. Yeah, they live on the same time as everybody. <laughs> did, did you find as a teacher when you were teaching, you mentioned that, you know, Aboriginal inmates and the community in general, they don't trust authority with good reason. Mm -hmm. They don't trust the justice system. But is the um, trust in teachers different in the community? Well, I think historically... So when we go back to education, we still have the highest rate of people who don't go, you know, who don't go past year six, who don't go past year 10. We still have the highest rate of dropout. But I think as educators, we need to understand we have, you know, we have a lot of kids who have gluey that's not picked up. What's that? So gluey is where the glue builds up and up and up in the ear and the child's deaf. Mm. Is that from um, not getting medical attention for ear infections? No, well, my youngest son had gluey and right. that was probably picked up when he was about three at preschool. Right. But he had to have grommets put in, which he had oh, to wear until yeah. he was my about 12. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So what you're finding is a lot of kids, if they can't hear, or especially, you know, if they haven't got glasses or, yeah. reading, you know, their eyes haven't been tested, what you're finding is a lot of children disengage at school. Yeah. And I can tell you as an adult learner, when people can't read and write, their oracy is at a very high level. They know how to talk. They know what the buzzwords are. They know what they can and should be saying. And for that reason, people assume because their oracy is great, well, their reading and writing must be great. So as an adult educator, you pick up very, very quickly. People who can't read and write are very good at covering that. And they're the people that struggle with the reading and writing. But with our children, and the men were very good at it, you could tell if a new student come in and you sort of set a task at the side all of a sudden that behaviour might ramp up and all they're wanting you to say is get out, get out, out of the class. And most of the time they would actually um, be quite surprised when I'd say, oh, okay, let's sit down, what, what words are you finding hard? And they'd still be, you know, yelling or swearing or whatever because when they were in education space as kids, 
the behaviour was what got them kicked out. They yeah. didn't lose any front. People just thought they were badly behaved children. And a lot of our parents don't go engage with the education system. Traditionally, uh, with the stolen generations, a lot of children were taken from schools. So you still have parents who have passed down those stories who don't trust the education system. So they mightn't turn up to parent and teacher night because they think if they're going to turn up, there's going to be a problem. So best to avoid it, we just don't go. They mightn't engage in community activities like, you know, be working on the canteen and things like that. So you have a lot of parents and grandparents who still have that dis distrust in the education space. And that's why in a custodial setting, people have had such negative experiences in education, that's why it's really important to have a safe, a culturally safe space, but most importantly have teachers and trainers who are engaged and know how to work with people who have such negative expectations. And the saddest thing as a teacher is when they expect nothing from you. Yeah. Oh, okay. They yeah. have no assumption that you're going to help them to read or write or that you're going to help them fill in a form or that you're going to explain something. And that's that was one of the saddest things for me when working because you've got to remember I was 25, I was going to save the world, I was going to educate everybody. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's so disappointing when you find out, Louise, we don't expect nothing off you. Why are we doing forms? We just thought you could put a you know, video on yeah. or play some music and we can play the guitar. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, that's that was probably one of the biggest challenges for me, changing people's perception mm. that education can be a safe space and it can help you, mm. you know, and it helps, you know, it sets a timetable for you. It gives you something to look forward to in the morning. Mm. I'm still staggered by that statistic about the head injuries because, oh, no. you know, I know in sport they're looking a lot at how concussions and injuries differ in like women football players, but we're talking about traumatised women, traumatised Aboriginal women entering prison who've got head injuries and you've got to change the whole way that you, yeah, communicate, educate. I mean, that's massive. I'm well, we've now, I think it only got launched in, I think it only got launched in December. So we've created now a training package for working with women. Mm. So custodial office now, it's called the female training package. So what that involves is staff. So they'll roll it out at Dewinia and Silverwater Women's, which are our two biggest female jails. And um, that's about staff have to do with this training package, which looks at trauma, which looks at integ integrational trauma, sexual abuse, head injuries, communication skills, different techniques that you use when working with women, because our department acknowledges you need a different skill set when you're working with females. And not saying that females are harder than men, but it's a different way you have to communicate and they have different needs. And I know you've heard in the past, women are a lot harder to work with because women and men, you can tell them once or twice, no, and they get it. Women, you can tell them 20 times and they will still come back. And they're really persistent. It doesn't just end on day one. Like, yeah. you you know, you will yeah. keep getting asked and asked because when you speak to these women, a lot of time they haven't been heard and the only way they get something is by wearing people down. Yeah, yeah but I like to think that's the same part of us that gets things done. <laughs> that's right. You know, in life and at home when the man goes, nah, nah, it's not going to work. And we go, oh, for Christ's sake. And we just... We get it done while they're out or whatever, you know? That's right. Getting on to what my role is. So, yes. Yes. So I was a teacher for 20 years in the jail and then I got the opportunity to um, act in the role as the principal manager of strategy and policy. So when I first started, that was the end beacon goal that when you were, if you were Aboriginal, that's the job you wanted. And the lady who worked in that role was Pat Mora. And they were basically that unit was like the beacon for anything Aboriginal programs that were going through, any Aboriginal initiatives, 
keeping the department accountable for how they are addressing Aboriginals. So when I got asked to come into um, this role, I stayed in the education space because I had two boys and I just uh, got off of many roles. I did some acting up in many different roles. But for me, at that time in my life, the kids were the main priority. Mm. And boys are hard, like girls are hard too, but boys are hard because they're enrolled in every sport known to man. <laughs> and, you know, they want to go on every camp and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, once they got into sort of U12 and U10, I thought, oh, I can take this role up. So, um since being in that role now, um, I've been at five years, our role is basically anything to do with programs that are being looked at that come into the jails for inmates. It comes through our unit and we vet it and we ask questions. Because in the past, if the word, if a program had Aboriginal in it, well, it must be great, must be awesome, it's going to work for sure. And coming from an education background, I want, I want stats, I want literature on why it does work because I think if we're going to promote these programs to help our clients... We need to make sure that the program's effective. So that's our job, to make sure that any sort of programs or any new streamways that are coming into the department, we have an Aboriginal lens over it. Another part of that is engaging with community. So trying to get community organisations, because we know in the past we haven't been good with men or women looking at trauma. I think we've looked at trauma, but we haven't looked at that healing component. So it's about trying to gain the confidence for community organisations to come in who do healing the best. Yeah. You know, they've had many, many years' experience. They've lived it. They live in communities where they're still doing it. So that's our role to try and engage community organisations to have trust to come back into the department and run those programs. Well, we know that PTSD is a very specific issue that requires specific treatment, and we know that... Indigenous trauma is a very specific trauma because it has the generational element to it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not surprising. No. And you find too, what we find is when we have community organisations come in and run those sort of programs because Aboriginal people like to go through programs in a group. So yeah. you might have other teaching environments or program environments where everyone's at a different level. Aboriginal people, everyone likes to go through as a group with the program. And what you find is, um, you know, some of those components, because they're community, inmates start to open up. Like inmates will open up and will address trauma. And it's, and it's very sad because for a lot of our um, inmates, they didn't even realise they had trauma. Can I ask, as much as I was making fun of these um, ideas of going walkabout and all that sort of stuff, how true and how real is the idea of um, Aboriginal sort of shyness because the shame job idea? Because, Very much. Yeah. So can you t yeah. speak about that? And I'm wondering how how that plays into a therapeutic environment when you're asking people to speak up about their trauma. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point you've raised because there is shame attached to coming to custody. Mm. Um, and to having suffered any kind of abuse or anything like that. Yeah. Mm. And you find, um, well, I found that this is just my experience, women are a lot more open to talk about it as where men are very, very shut down. Mm. You only... Um, very, I can't think of any time when I've had a, a, a male inmate open up in a classroom setting and say, well, I've been sexually abused or this has happened to me. So there is a lot of shame attached to it. And the, the else, also the other shame is if, especially 
when they come into custody, if they've let other, other people down, like say, for example, they've come into custody, they've been the sole carer and now they don't have that custody. Like the shame of the fact not only of the offence but the impact that that has on the offence. And I think, too, most of our inmates have had parents in custody as children. So they've had this really negative association with the justice system from a very young age, whether that's with police, whether that's coming in for visits when they've seen their parents in some, you know, of a 19% of our um, inmates have had at least one parent in custody while they've been a child. So they've had an early contact with the justice system. So for a lot of them, it's a massive shame when they come in because they know as a child how much it impacted on them seeing their parents in custody and what they missed out and what um, things their parents missed out on. And now the reality is hit, well, I'm repeating that same pattern. And, you know, Aboriginal women, they're the highest women. They don't want people visiting them in custody. They don't want to put their children through that. As were our men, they're very good at insisting their father of the year, they want every kid to come in and they, poor mum has to travel on five buses, three trains, bring seven kids and they've got to wait in a visit area for an hour, try and keep that child calm and then go in and play happy families on a visit. As where the women will tend to just not do that. So, And that's a big shame component because they reflect back to their own trauma when they've done that as children. Yeah. yeah. So that that shame is a is a component is a component, yeah. and th- and there's even more. Um, I think there's more shame when you go into a protection area. So yeah. for many years there was this um, there was sort of this cloak that you know Aboriginal offenders didn't end up in protection. Like what do you go into protection for? Oh, like say if you're a pedophile or it's a sex offence you know, or you owe money to someone and for your own protection you have to be put onto protection. So, um, yeah, I know um, from teaching and you would go into a protection area, that was another shame. Like if you walk in and see someone who you knew and they were sitting in on protection, they'd be highly embarrassed because they'd think you assume I'm here because I'm a pedophile when they actually might be there because they've owed money to some group and now they've come into jail and that group's there. They yeah. have to go on to protection. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a lot and and a lot to expect to, in, the, in the therapeutic scenario. How do you overcome that? When you say that Aboriginal people like to go into a setting as a group. Yeah. So what we find is um, we've had um, therapeutic art like and addressing trauma yeah, right. and that's been really good because the people get to explain their own journeys and they're not having to, they're not having to orally communicate that. Yeah. They're doing a painting where they might write a story attached to it or they might actually say, this is where I started and this is where I am now. And that's been really good, the the therapeutic art. Also getting, you know, a lot of our inmates do give back to community, you know, raising funds for like firefighters or raising funds for veterans or donating work to local preschools or donating work to different high schools. You know, they're positive things where people... um, get to feel proud about themselves so like there isn't a shame attached to it like they're actually putting something back into the community which is I think really positive. After the break Louise talks about deaths in custody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and how support for families has changed. We'd like to thank our patrons Jenny Foster, Narelle Davey, Samantha Taylor, Princess Kitty Meow, Carly Smith, Helen Harmon and Caroline Nichols. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One of the important roles Louise Lynch and her team provide is to support families when there is a death in custody of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. She's on call 24-7. Louise shares with us what this support looks like. So my role, when I came into this role and an Aboriginal death in custody occurred, so I'm on call 24-7. So if a death in custody is Aboriginal, they would contact me. So when I first came into the role, my role was to advise Aboriginal affairs, advise ALS and make contact with the family. But what I worked out really quickly was it just wasn't good enough. It just wasn't good enough. So now what happens when an Aboriginal death in custody occurs, uh, within 48 hours I will go meet with the family and that's that gives the family the opportunity to ask the questions they want. Like I could not think of anything more devastating than being told that your son or your daughter or a relative has died in custody. Yeah. And that was the frustration for families. They had to wait to the coroner's inquest to get these answers. Which can be years. Yes. Mm. So now within 48 hours I will go out and meet with the family and that's very confronting because even though I wasn't involved in that incident, I'm the face that's meeting with them and you're dealing with family at their worst time. They're traumatised. And it's hard to accept, I think, specifically because the family member is supposed to be literally under supervision. Yeah. Right. And how how is it that they have died? I mean, that's I don't yep. I don't understand. Well, there's many reasons, and there's many reasons. But 
one of the biggest fallacies is that you are going to die at a higher rate if you're Aboriginal than non-Aboriginal. Well, that's just not true. Oh, wow, okay. That is not true. Yeah. So the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody, which was done over 30 years ago, one of the things that highlighted was the treatment of Aboriginal people, which a lot of things have now changed, but it also highlighted that Aboriginal people didn't die at a higher rate. And when we look at statistics now, you are less likely to die in custody if you're Aboriginal than non-Aboriginal. Okay. However, in saying that, we now have a lot older generation in custody too. We've got, you know, people my mum's age, my father's age who are now in custody. So we have a natural attrition rate of people who are dying from natural causes. Mm. But we still now also have a massive amount of people who are coming in with mental health issues. And those mental health issues, I can tell you as a staff member, sometimes it can take up to eight to ten weeks to get an inmate settled on their medication and it's been devastating in this role because I always assume that if someone died in custody like they would tell somebody or you know there might be spikes in their behaviour which sort of led you to think what's going on there but it's been sad some of the cases there's been no warning there's been no letters there's been no telling family um, to the point where you know you know they've used sheets off the back of the toilet to actually um to actually kill themselves, you know, so it's um, terrible. And since I've started, we now have what we call risk intervention teams and that's when that's when you highlight those first-time offenders, those young offenders, those people who have mental health where you have Justice Health sit on a meeting, you have a staff member, you have a custodial officer and you work out what's the best way to keep someone safe. And it's just, you know, the only way we can keep people safe with they've got mental health issues or they're suicidal is we have to put them in a single cell where you can watch mm. them. And yeah. for a lot of them, that's traumatic, yeah. right? They've got mental health issues, they're not feeling well, they're suicidal, and yet the only way we can actually try and protect people is by putting them in a safe cell where we have to monitor and take care of them. Because by its nature it needs to be a very sparse environment. Mm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then they have to be assessed again the next day and the next day and the next day and then you have to work out plans to actually step them down before they can go back into a main area. And, you know, it's devastating. If you go out to Long Bay Hospital, the mental health area there, it's just it's traumatic. It is traumatic because you've got people who are just intent on hurting themselves and just go to such such mm. long ranges to do it. But in saying that too, with deaths in custody, we don't always know when someone makes a phone call and they're told someone's died mm. um, and the inmate doesn't tell anybody. And it's not till something happens and then they go back and check phone calls and you're aware, oh, you know, this has happened. And it's just, um, and it's very sad. And you've still got drug overdoses. You've still got, you know, people who, I remember one death in custody, it was the fella's birthday. So all of them had put their prescription pills together and that was his birthday present. God. Mm. Um, you know, mm. so there are many different reasons. And unfortunately, as best as you can try, you can't always save people and, so with the deaths in custody, we meet with the family and that can be very confronting, but it's very good for the family. And then part of my role is to make sure I then organise a smoking ceremony for where the inmate has died. And that's where we get to bring family members. Some family members want to come in and they want to see the cell. They want to see where the incident happened. Other family members don't. So you get to smoke the cell and it's a really good opportunity too because our staff don't go to work expecting to find someone dead. No. So it's horrific also for the staff who found the, the person as well. So that gives that smoking ceremony not only cleanses that area, 
But it also gives the family, if they want to, to meet the staff who found the person mm. and they can actually see the impact it has on them because for some of our staff, they never come back. Yeah. You know, there are other things too. When that happens in, if that happens in a wing where the person has died, we have to move every Aboriginal out of that wing because they don't want to stay in that wing. Yeah. Mm. So you have to cleanse the whole area and you also cleanse all the inmates who have been in that area too and sometimes that's not just Aboriginal, it's other inmates want that as well. And Corrections New South Wales is cooperative with that? Oh, most those, definitely. Those measures? Yeah, most definitely. Well, it's mm. a must. It's not whether they're cooperative. <laughs> it's a it's a. Well, cultural, in the past it hasn't been a must. Well, so it's, it's a cultural yeah. protocol that has to take place and it's got to take place. So after the smoking ceremony is done, we keep in contact with the family Part of my role is to advocate for the family. So we might have families who can't afford to have the body taken back from an area to where they want to be buried. Or we might have family who don't have the transport to actually go and view the body. So it's part of my role to advocate that we support family financially and emotionally that way. And most importantly now at coroner's inquests. So we make sure we provide accommodation, meals, transport, and most importantly, I make sure I go to those coroner's inquests so you're there for a support person because coroner's inquests are really daunting. Oh, yeah. Uh, you go in and there's like 10 different legal reps, which one's mine, who's on, you know, the correction side, who's Justice Health, who's the family's rep, and it's very, very daunting for those families. So that's part of our role to also make sure that the family are prepared and aware what's going to happen because it's um, if you've never been to a coroner's inquest, yeah, it's just totally something different and it's very, very draining because you're sitting there for days listening to different mm. people's, you know, reports, listening to forensic. The coroner gets all the reports, all the footage. They get a lot more information than we as public who are sitting in there here. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's very, very draining. And then the other important thing is to make sure we offer counselling. So we've had mm. counselling that we sometimes still support for two years after an event um, and most importantly the children. That's really big. We start to see families will contact me six months after the death in custody and say his brother or his sister yeah. aren't coping. So making sure that as a department we support that and we support, you know, we're not directing them where to go to counselling. They pick where they're going to counselling and we cover that cost. Oh, that's brilliant. What, what would you want um, non-Aboriginal people to understand like I'm talking about you know even myself I didn't even know that all this happened it's it's absolutely um I'm glad that everything like that's happening to support people but what do you want the community non-aboriginal community to understand about deaths in custody and the challenges for families and aboriginal inmates because I feel like we don't get it not that we don't care but it just feels like it's just over the head over the head and like what what do we need to know? I, I just think deaths in custody shouldn't occur, regardless whether mm. you're Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal. And deaths in custody are just horrific, uh, you know, and it's horrific for the staff. Um, it's horrific for the families. And I think um, since being in this role, like I said, I've got two boys and I just could not imagine anything worse than getting a phone call. And we're meant to keep them safe. Mm, yeah. That's our job. Yeah. Our job is to keep people in a safe and humane environment. So when it does occur, like I said, because Aboriginal and maybe non-Aboriginal people too don't trust the system, they automatically assume the worst case scenario. And that's why it's so good that we actually meet with families to answer those questions. And I, can't, I don't have all the answers. So there might be times when I've had a meeting with community. There was a death in custody where not just the family but 
all the community wanted to meet in an open forum and ask questions too. And I had to say, I don't know that answer, but I will come back to you. So when a death in custody occurs, the police do an investigation. So that's separate. They do an investigation. And then internally, we have our own investigation, which those reports then go to the police. So a lot of the times the questions they're asking about, I can't answer, but I can get that, that information mm. off the police. But the, the biggest issue is that the department realises the devastation of people dying in custody, and that's why we you know, have trauma-informed training. That's why if you're a new recruit, you've got to do training, you've got to do cultural awareness. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to do working with women as opposed to working, working with men. You've got to understand the impacts of sexual assault, domestic violence. So there's a lot um, since I started that the department has done. Well, when I was looking at suicide rates, they've dropped in the last 10 years, you know, from, say, 15 people down to four. And I think that's got a lot to do because our staff are more educated. Uh, no longer, like I said before, you know, years ago, people thought custodial officers just turned to key. No, now they need to be aware, and so do our non-custodial staff. They need to be aware, what are some of the spikes that you will see so that you can report this incident? So we've started, our Deputy Commissioner, Luke Grant, has now, we've started what we call a thematic review. So we're looking over the last 10 years of Aboriginal deaths in custody, and that's when he's got ex-coroners, lawyers, um, academics, also having families who will come in and talk about the impact that it had on them. And it's about looking at the fact over these 10 years, we look at the reports, we look at coroner's inquests, we also go through the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody. And I think over 90% of those recommendations have been implemented or partially implemented. Because that but, was like 30 years ago, wasn't yep, it? Yep. And it's yeah. our job to go through them recommendations, say, have we done it? Have we not done it? Is it been done or is it only partially done? But it also gives us an opportunity to see as a department, well, what are the gaps? Is there a reoccurring theme, for example, someone dies in custody when they've been moved the second time to a jail? Like, is that a spike area? Mm. Is there a reoccurring theme that when there's been a death in community and that inmate, has there been a spike in deaths in custody in that last period? Is is there a reoccurrence, for example, when people come in with mental health issues? Is it occurring within the first four weeks, five weeks, or is it happening after people have settled on their medication? So that thematic review, so that'll go up to the... Um, well, that, that'll go to the minister and then that'll be made a public document. And I think that's really good because I think if our department's not scared to analyse and articulate what we're doing, I think that shows that um, we have faith in the system but also the wider community can have faith in the system too. And it's about unveiling the myths around death and custody too, Yeah. which um, at times, you know, or what is said is just not true. But at other times, you know, some of the things you see are horrific. Mm. How do you stay in in your job, like psychologically? Well, I'm very lucky because mm. I have a family. Mm. I have two boys and a husband and my father, who's very old, <laughs> lives with me. So if you were to ask them what my job is, they'd tell you I'm a good writer. So when I get home, my my family don't care what my day's been like. As soon as I walk in the door, what's for dinner? Where are we <laughs> yes, going? Are. Yes. I need to go here. Can you drop me there? Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm a bit short of cash. Have you got $20 I can borrow off you? <laughs> and, you know, my dad, all he's concerned about is what's for dinner? When's it happening? When's it starting? Yep. You know, <laughs> what's going on? So I'm very lucky when I go home, I don't discuss work. I, I really I don't talk about work and I'm really glad that they're not overly interested in my job either. Yeah. Kids just don't care. 
care, do they? No, <laughs> no, zero bucks. Yeah. And the, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always say my kids, I could I could say, you know, I'm going to have open heart surgery and they'd go, can you bring me back something? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all I care about. The only thing they get frustrated is is I'm constantly on the phone. So yeah. my yeah. father will walk in and go, oh, you're on that bloody phone again. <laughs> yeah. And I go, can you be quiet, please? Yeah. Be quiet. And I'm very lucky. My mother was a teacher in corrections as well. Mm. So she was a teacher for um, probably 15 years in corrections and I'm very lucky so if I need to debrief I can talk to my mother because she understands the system awesome and that's really good and I've also got a director and a deputy commissioner if I need to dump I can sort of go and see and at the end of the day you have to keep the main focus is my job is to make corrections a better well-rounded place for Aboriginal people to be in custody and the only way that's going to happen is by championing that and reminding people that you have an Aboriginal unit. This must come through our unit. Mm. We have to have an Aboriginal lens over this. And working in the jail in the front lines is really hard. So because of my experience, I have a lot of depth. If we're going to be running programs, I just don't tick that off. I go and speak to the staff and most importantly, speak to the inmates. Yeah. We're mm. looking at this program. How do you think this looks? Yeah. Does this meet your needs and or does it? outcomes are so excellent that, I mean, that must just keep you inspired and engaged. It does. And I'm just really lucky. I've got a, a great team who have, you know, who have custodial background who have worked in jails in in that SAPO role or who've never been in corrective services but have worked in other government organisations and they're aware of community issues. So I'm really lucky I've surrounded myself with people who have great strengths. So it makes my job a lot easier. There's always in the public space we talk about reducing recidivism or reducing inmates coming into custody. But part of my issue is I think we need to go back. As corrective services, we don't choose who comes into our custody. Mm. That's driven by the courts over-policing, sentence reforms, lack of people getting bail. So, yeah, for me at times looking at why we have this over-representation isn't so much just looking at a department but actually looking at that justice process like the courts, the police, before people come into custody because they're the people who are bringing them into our custody. I mean, would it would seem to me that there are some offences that Aboriginal people are being brought into custody for that they don't need to be. I mean, what what do women, Aboriginal women mainly, come into jails for? So a lot of women, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, come yeah. in for shoplifting. Yeah. You have a lot of women who will come in um, related to domestic violence mm-hmm. issues that have been going on a long time and then obviously something's happened and they've snapped. Mm-hmm. You also have um, like disorderly. You might have oh, yeah. disorderly orders, but then what you find is when the disorderly order happens, then they're getting charged for abusing the police, then they're getting charged for assaulting the police. So one charge ends up turning into, you know, at times can turn into three or four. But in New South Wales, Aboriginal men are 13 more times likely to get a sentence than non-Aboriginal men and Aboriginal women are 19.9% more likely to get a custodial sentence than non-Aboriginal women. This sounds like this is a total white woman question I'm asking why why is that I mean I'm not claiming to know anything but I'm actually I'm just shocked like I just it doesn't make sense yeah so you have a lot of people who will represent themselves because they can't get access to legal aid or lawyers or you have a lot of people who haven't turned up to previous courts so they won't get bail applications okay and that's because they don't they don't trust the the yep. system and also they don't understand what's happening with it. Yeah, yep. and you also have a lot who are done for driving offences but have warrants okay. and have other things out. So when they do get picked up, 
they're getting picked up with that um, historical stuff as well. Mm. Mm. And, you you know, you have pockets. You, If you were to study looking at um, the court system, you have pockets where you have over people getting custodial sentences as opposed to other areas where that same um, crime act mightn't get that sentence. They might be a community order um, sentence instead. And it depends also if they've had already previous run-ins with police. You know, like I know when I grew up, where I grew up, you know, at times you were stopped on your bike and asked your name. And Mm. I learnt from a very early age, never tell the police your name, never tell them where you are, they've got no right to ask you that. I just wanted to raise with Black Lives Matter, um, being in charge of the Aboriginal unit, I think it's a great movement. I think it's something that's really engaged community and it's also engaged people who necessarily wouldn't have seen that as a cause. I think it's heightened across worldwide the treatment of black people in custody and I think it's really heightened it. But part of my, what I would like to see is the Black Lives Matter movement put a lot of focus on that front end of the justice system where change can happen, like the over-policing. Why are Aboriginal people still getting court sentences at higher rates than non-Aboriginal people? Why are Aboriginal people getting less um, access to bail than non-Aboriginal people? So I think the Black Lives Matter has really brought communities together and I think it does highlight a lot of issues that need to be highlighted. But I think also that movement could be pushed into the area of changing that early justice system, the touch point where our people come into police, come into courts and look at changing those jurisdictions because then we wouldn't have the over-representation of people coming into custody. Thanks to our guests Louise Lynch and Corrective Services New South Wales. As you heard from Louise's experience, There are more roles in corrections and custodial jobs. We'll put details in the show notes so you can find out more. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 13 Yarn on 13 92 76. This is a 24-7 crisis support phone line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We'd like to thank our patrons... Sarah Zhuang Bentink, Jackie Thompson, Bronwyn Wu, Jenny Bennetts, Aren't You Cute, Emma Schumann, Laura Davo, Raymond Elliott. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well. So, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.